<coughs> Verla allowed me to oversleep this morning. <laughs> uh, <coughs> anyway, um, all right, well, we're back here in <coughs> Revelation 19, and I have up on the screen here Revelation 18, <coughs> just to uh, remind us a little bit of where we've been and and uh, the context that we're in. So let's let's pray. We'll just get a little refresher quickly here on chapter 18 and move into to 19 once again. Father, we ask your blessing upon us now as we come to your word. We thank you for this very <clears throat> special and remarkable book of revelation that you've given to us to encourage us and to strengthen us as we live in these in well in this evil world and uh, where the spirit of the antichrist is active and that one day perhaps even soon the man of lawlessness will reveal himself and you will allow him to um, to be your instrument as it were in culminating your great plan of redemption that your justice will be revealed <clears throat> as you deal with him and the the beast the false prophet ultimately with Satan himself. So, Father, we pray that you would uh, bless us with, with your word now, give us ability to understand it, to believe it, and to obey it. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, then. Um, <clears throat> so you remember, just go put clear back up here to the heading, chapter 18 was about the fall of, of Babylon, <clears throat> this present world system, uh, you might even call have called it the the kingdom of uh, of Antichrist. <clears throat> the thing is cra crashing down, and uh, and the world, the earth dwellers who have been profiting so much from it are uh, weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth and, and so on. Um, and, uh, and then, <clears throat> as soon as you come to chapter 19, oops, that's 20, chapter 19, great change, right? From the weeping and the wailing because Babylon is no more, you have rejoicing in heaven. Verse 1, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And largely this rejoicing, specifically in regard to the fall of Babylon, destruction of Babylon, is because the last verse of chapter 18 and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. So uh, Babylon was the great persecutor of, of Christ's people, the enemy. And, and, uh, and, so, <clears throat> and so in contrast to that, let me get the right chapter here, weeping and wailing. How come it doesn't want a zero on 19? Here we go. Um, all of a sudden is, after this, 
I saw, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And so you see this great um, um, response to the glory of the, the justice of God. That's something that's lacking today, isn't it? That um, people, you know, oh, well, I, I think I've mentioned that recently, Verla and I have been watching a lot of the uh, A&E show, uh, 48 Hours, um, Real Crime, True Crime, those kind of things on, <clears throat> on YouTube and about wicked, evil people, usually murderers who have been uh, caught if they, after they, some of them, you know, like what was that up in the Washington State, Green River Killer, how many people, I think like 50 or more, <clears throat> young women he killed. Of course, there's Ted Bundy and all these serial killers and so forth. Um, but one thing we've been noticing <clears throat> is that uh, you'll you'll watch the the program about all the evil that these guys do, okay? And sometimes it stretches over over decades, over years before they get caught. But all the evil and suffering and so on that they caused. <clears throat> then they have a trial, and in the end, oftentimes, not all the time, but like Bundy, of course, Ted Bundy, he was executed, justifiably so. But pretty often, you'll be, at the end, you know, you're leading up, they're having the trial and so forth, <clears throat> and... Uh, and then they tell you what the sentence was. So I watched one, um, yesterday I watched one where a guy had, <clears throat> had murdered a young, a young woman and, uh, <clears throat> and then they finally caught him and through forensics and so forth had the trial. And, uh, <clears throat> and it wasn't any kind of a crime of, passion or anything, in my opinion, murder is murder. They shouldn't sort that out. But anyway, so at the end, it's like, all right, they caught him. They had the trial. Here's the guilty verdict. <clears throat> they sentenced him to 16 years in prison. There it is, 16 years. A lot of them get, okay, well, we'll give you life, but it's going to be 15 years to life. <laughs> emphasis on the 15 years before they start talking about parole. Um, <clears throat> a lot of that, not all of it, because he happened in uh, the most recent one I watched where he just got 16 years was in Washington State. But a lot of them <clears throat> that do that in these sentences that just don't seem to measure up, 
um, are in Canada. That happens a lot. And, uh, and over in, in England, in, in Britain, and so on. There seems to be, or there is, in this world, this mitigation of consequences of evil that some, somehow don't want to be too harsh, that somehow it's bad to execute a serial killer or, or, or killer or so forth, um, or someone that you know abducts a little child and murders them and so on. But here in Scripture, what we see here is hallelujahs, um, choirs in heaven praising God because he's wiped out Babylon and because he's wiped out evil so that that the glory of his justice is seen as just as beautiful as the glory of his grace shown to his people in Christ, you see. <clears throat> I, I think that a lot of times you got to wonder how much of our justice system is produced as a result of the criminal's input. And we're seeing, I think this is part of anti, the spirit of the Antichrist today, operative, <clears throat> is, that, is that we're seeing um, <clears throat> a, a rejection almost of justice. A, uh, um, it's, like this, it's almost like the criminal is the victim. Criminal has, has been so oppressed that <clears throat> this is why he killed these people and so on. And so we're going to put them in. Uh, anyway, you get me going on this topic, right? Um, prison systems. They'll call them, it's a correctional facility. But what is behind? Really? You're going to correct? How many people get corrected? In there, usually what happens is they go in there and uh, bad company produces good, uh, bad morals, right? Don't be deceived, Paul says. So they go in there and hang out for 10 years and, and learn how to do even more evil. At any rate, the point here is, here there is rejoicing in heaven because God has effected his glorious Justice. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our, belong to our God. All right, then. <clears throat> um, we looked last time, too, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what I wanted to, I'll read it again here, and then what I wanted to do is, I don't think we did this last time. Sometimes if you ever, if I'm ever teaching and you say, hey, you did that last week. Well, just assume I know what I'm doing and I'm, I'm reviewing things. But I don't think I did this one uh, from William Hendrickson, More Than Conquerors here, his little commentary. Very good book on, on Revelation. And he gives some really good insight into 
the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, so <clears throat> here we go. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. It's like, it's like uh, heaven is, is a loud place, right? And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, <clears throat> and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and, and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then comes this section, the rider <clears throat> on the white horse. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. <clears throat> he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and, who had and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the, by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And then it moves into chapter 20, and here, when we get here, we start hearing about this thousand years, okay? Um, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. 
after that, he must be released <clears throat> for a little while. And anyway, then chapter 20 goes on. It refers to a thousand years several more times, such as, for example, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first um, resurrection. And so we'll have to talk about that a thousand year <clears throat> period. What is the story on that? Is it a literal thousand years? Is it, is it symbolic or, or what? And of course, it's from Revelation 20 that we get all of this talk about the millennium. That must be some Latin derivative uh, word that means a thousand, right? A mill, uh, a thousand. Um, the millennium. Now, if you've been around the church very long, you probably have heard people talking about the end times and so on, the revelation and, and this business of the millennium. So they, they uh, <clears throat> little prefixes are stuck to the word millennium to describe uh, people's different takes on it. You know, you know, what is it? So, for example, premillennialism, premillennial, pre, before. Um, and uh, this is, I, I'd say that, that that might even be the predominant view of the millennium among evangelicals, uh, believers, Christians today in the evangelical church, in contrast to uh, Reformed uh, camps, Reformed theology, Reformed churches, and, and so forth. But So the prefixes refer to the timing of the return of Christ, you might say, um, in relation to the millennium. Let, let me explain. So, premillennialism, so you've got, what do you got here? You got premillennialism, you got postmillennialism, and you've got, um, just a little letter A, amillennialism. Uh, <clears throat> most reformed people, reformed theologians, in the Reformed theology camp, are amillennial. The uh, evangelical church, as I said, you know, typically widespread is um, is premillennialism. Postmillennialism is kind of a thing of its of its own, and I suppose I suppose you might find that in certain subdivisions of the reform churches and so on. But at any rate, what does it mean? All right, so it has to do with the timing of the return of Christ. So in premillennialism, it looks at the thousand-year period as a literal thousand-year period on this earth that that takes place, <clears throat> let me get this right here now, um, that, that takes place, I was going to say before, but it's, I think it's after. Well, here's how it works. Christ comes. Christ returns. And the first thing he does 
is set up his throne in Jerusalem, and he reigns, <clears throat> he reigns in this present world, <clears throat> having subdued Satan and his enemies, and he reigns for a thousand years. But that's not the new heavens and the new earth. That's Christ literally reigning from Jerusalem in this present world. <clears throat> and it's going to be a, a great time. Uh, uh, you, know, the, you know, the wolf lies down with the lamb and all of those kinds of things and, and great peace in the world. Satan is bound and not able to be <clears throat> active. But it doesn't last. It lasts a thousand years. But at the end of the thousand years, God allows Satan to be released to deceive the nations again. There's this great rebellion against Christ, and he wipes them out once and, uh, <clears throat> once and for all. So in that case, Christ comes before the millennium, pre millennialism. There, I got it right that time, okay? He comes before the millennium. <clears throat> and it's a literal thousand years. What's post-millennialism? Well, you see then, it's Christ comes after the thousand years. And here, the thousand years is taken as more figurative or symbolic, but that Christ comes at the end of it. And what it teaches is <clears throat> that the church is ultimately, through the preaching of the gospel, going to essentially convert the world. That, that things are going to get better and better. The church is going to become more and more victorious. Now, if you've been with us during our study of, of Revelation here, as we've gone along, you've you got to be scratching your head at that point because... Better and better. Uh, that doesn't seem to be what we what we see here. Evil, evil, in, in fact, increases. But that's that's what postmillennialism is. Is that the church kind of through the preaching of the gospel, the world is converted, ushers in this this things get better and better. This millennial period, and then Christ returns to reign. <clears throat> on his throne at the end of that time. So, premillennialism, Christ comes, effects the millennium, literal thousand years. Postmillennialism, thousand years kind of is now, it, it's symbolic. It just represents a long period of time. Ultimately, the church, the preaching of the gospel, converts the world. Christ comes again. All right. And then you have amillennialism. Now, amillennialism, awe is kind of like a, a negating prefix, isn't it? Uh, uh, and and so, so literally on, on, the, on the face of it, the word literally would mean no millennium, no millennium. Well, but that's not exactly, that's not what um, amillennialists believe. And... By this time, again, as you've been following through Revelation, you realize that's the position we take. Amillennialism. <clears throat> what is amillennialism? Amillennialism says that the thousand years is symbolic. 
and that it represents this, the, pre, the church age. It represents the church age, all, all millennialism. And, uh, and that at the end of the church age, Christ then, then Christ returns, you see. Now at this point then we say, well, wait a minute here. Are you saying that right now then Satan is bound? All right, and we'll, we'll get into this more when we get into chapter 20, but look at verse 1 again here, chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it <clears throat> over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, what all millennialism maintains is that the thousand-year period is symbolic of the church age. And so it represents now. This means then that we hold to, all millennialists hold to the position that Satan is bound now and that he has been bound ever since the cross. Remember when in Luke, when <clears throat> Jesus says, I, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning, right? Cast out, <clears throat> cast out of heaven and so on. But that, that's the amillennial view. It doesn't mean that we don't believe in this biblical thing and called period called the, the millennium, but we don't but it does mean we don't believe that it is a literal thousand thousand year period, you see. And so anyway, as we get into chapter twenty, we will necessarily have to discuss those things in more detail. But what I wanted to show you here <clears throat> is that, um, by the way, I, I guess I should give you a little side note here because you might come across this, uh, this term. I suppose you might. <clears throat> Maybe you've heard of the term theonomy. Theonomy, okay. Theos. Theos, that's Greek words. Theos means God. Namos, namos means law, okay, so theonamos, theonomy, it means the law of God. <clears throat> many, I was going to say most, but I, let's just say many or even some post-millennialists, remember, <clears throat> post-millennialists believe that um, things are going to, the church to the preaching of the gospel is going to uh, uh, ultimately convert the nations and then Christ returns. <clears throat> now, there are, there's this position called theonomy, the law of God, that says we as the church should be <clears throat> promoting and working toward the establishment of the law of God as the law of the nations. All right? 
Theonomus would probably tweet my description here, but <clears throat> that they, they hold that nations, the United States, whatever, right, <clears throat> should be operating according to the law of God. And some of them get pretty, I mean, not just in spirit, but in actuality, in, in literalness, that the Old Testament law should become the law of the land. <clears throat> There's certain aspects of that that they wouldn't include. I don't think they believe that you should, that the United States should start setting up some kind of blood sacrifices or something. I don't think that's that what it is. But then, but then there's other uh, laws that, from the Old Testament that, that are good. I mean, I, I've just been talking about how we see injustice in our criminal justice system so often we followed the Old Testament law of God, we wouldn't have that business of, of letting evil people off the hook. So, on. So that, but, so, a theonomist then says, and, and, and virtually all theonomists, if you follow me here, virtually all theonomists are post-millennialists because they consider that the function of the church right now is to increasingly convert the nations and part of this is this conversion to is to work toward establishing the law of God as the working constitution you might say of the nations all right so <clears throat> virtually all theonomists are post-millennialists. They see our job is to <clears throat> establish God's literal kingdom in this world until at some point then Christ then will <clears throat> Christ then will come. But there again, post-millennial, you will sometimes hear this term theonomy come come up and and so <clears throat> and so there it is. Anyway. All right, well, let's go back then to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And <clears throat> here's this really helpful input from William Hendrickson. And, and now remember, too, that you're going to get really confused if you try to take, well, really the whole book of Revelation, but <clears throat> certainly here, this 19th chapter, if you try to take things um, chronologically. In other words, if you take uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb happens here, all right, starting at verse 6, and then by the time you get down <clears throat> to verse 11, you have the return of Christ. I mean, obviously, the rider on the white horse, is, whose name is the Word of God and so forth, is obviously Christ, okay? So, so this rider on the white horse, this is an image of the, of the return of Christ, <clears throat> right? Well, <clears throat> then you see the problem here is that if we try to read Revelation here chronologically, so you have this event, then you have this event, then that's how it's laid out, then what you've got here is the marriage supper of the Lamb, <clears throat> which as we will see, 
is the consummation of the relationship of the marriage of Christ and his church. <clears throat> You've got that happening before the return of Christ in, in judgment, you see. So you can't take the... What you do have is um, flashbacks, <clears throat> things like, uh, um, well, certainly the, the, the return of Christ to... And he, and he judges once and for all the, the wicked and does away with them. We've seen that several times in Revelation already. He comes and he treads the winepress of the wrath of God. So we've seen the final judgment, in other words, <clears throat> described several times already in Revelation. But what happens is you have like earlier in the book a a description of the return of Christ and the effecting of his judgment upon the wicked. And then it'll have, let's, let's move in for a closer look from a different angle and get some more, get a, a, a more detail about the return of Christ. And that's what you have here then in, in chapter 19. Here it is again, the return of Christ. And, 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 Certain things are emphasized, more details are given, and, uh, and so forth. But all right, so <clears throat> here's this marriage supper of the Lamb, which is described um, after the fall of Babylon. The false bride, the harlot that rides the beast, that counterfeit church, remember, has been destroyed, judged, and, and wiped out. Now the true bride, who is betrothed to the, to the Lamb, to Christ, <clears throat> um, it comes in, into the scene here with this marriage supper. So, Okay, here we go, William Hendrickson. In order to understand the meaning of this sublime passage, we must briefly review the marriage customs of the Jews. We distinguish the following elements in a Jewish marriage. First comes the betrothal. This is considered more binding than our engagement. Okay, it's betrothal. This is like uh, Mary being betrothed to Joseph, right? And it's more than just an engagement that we have, right? The terms of the marriage are accepted in the presence of witnesses. This is the betrothal. And God's blessing is pronounced upon the union. From this day, the day of the betrothal, groom and bride are legally husband and wife. Next comes the interval between betrothal and the wedding feast. And during this interval, the groom pays the dowry to the father of the bride, if this hasn't been done yet. Sometimes the dowry is in the form of service rendered, like... Uh, Remember Jacob being duped by for seven years, one and another seven years by Laban and, and so on. So you've got the betrothal in front of witnesses. Legally then they're married at that point. Um, and, uh, and then, and during that time, the groom pays the dowry to the father of the bride. Then comes the procession at the close of the 
betrothal interval. The bride prepares and adorns herself. The groom, arrayed in his best attire and accompanied by his friends who sing and bear torches, proceeds to the home of the bride, of the betrothed. He receives the bride and conveys her with a returning procession to his own home or to the home of his parents. When the groom had to come from afar, the feast was at times spread at the home of the bride. And finally, there's the wedding feast, which includes the marriage supper. And the usual festivities last seven or even more days. Scripture again and again compares the love relationship between a bridegroom and his bride to that which exists between the Lord and his people, or between Christ and his church. And here's some references to that if you'd like to look them up. Isaiah 50, verse 1 and following. Isaiah 54, verse 1 and following. Ephesians 5, verse 32. <clears throat> and Revelation 21, we'll get to that in verse, in verse 9. So, um, you know, if you read the Bible at all, you, you know that this is the case, that, that very, very often <clears throat> Christ and his church, the, the Old Testament, the Lord and his people, are compared to bride and, and, and bridegroom, you see. So, um, <clears throat> Now, right now, all right, now, this is important here. So where are we now as the church? Where are we? Well, <clears throat> we are betrothed, okay? Right now, the church is betrothed to Christ. And moreover, during this time, Christ has paid the dowry, right? He has bought her, and uh, Hendrickson <clears throat> gives us the verse he remembers the the hymn from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood there's the dowry right with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died so the interval of separation has come the church is betrothed to christ and we're waiting for him right to come it's this entire dispensation this entire period between Christ's ascension to heaven and his coming once again and during this period the bride must make herself ready she arrays herself in fine linen glistening and pure the fine linen symbolizes her righteous acts her her uh, being clothed also with the righteousness of Christ being sanctified and 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 pure um Her deeds have been washed by the blood of Christ. At the end of this time, the bridegroom, accompanied by the angels of glory, and as uh, we saw last time, Herman Hoxima would say, the church triumphant, those believers, the saints who are with the Lord now, will return with him clothed in white. The end of this dispensation the bridegroom comes to receive his bride, the church. And the wedding feast begins. And that's what we're waiting for right now. And think of the parable of the ten virgins, right? Uh, five are wise, five are foolish. 
the five that are wise, <clears throat> the real bride of, of Christ, are prepared, ready, watching for him to, to, to come. Those who love his appearing. The careless ones, well, those are the fake fakes the, that are just being uh, <clears throat> unbelieving, not very careless about how they live and, and so on. But Christ will come and the wedding feast begins. And to that most glorious moment, our passage here in Revelation 19 refers in these words. It has come, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his wife has made herself ready. <clears throat> this feast, though, is not for one or two weeks, but throughout all eternity. This feast is the climax of that entire process by means of which the bridegroom, Christ, comes to his bride, the church. It's the goal and the purpose of that ever-increasing intimacy, union, fellowship, and communion between the Redeemer and the redeemed. In Christ, the bride was chosen from eternity. Throughout the entire Old Testament era, the wedding was announced. Next, the Son of God assumed our flesh and blood, and the betrothal took place. The dowry was paid by him at Calvary on the cross. And now, after an interval, which in the eyes of God is but just a little while, the bridegroom returns, and it has come, the wedding of the Lamb. The church on earth yearns for this moment, so does the church in heaven. And then we shall all be with him forever. It will be a holy, blessed, <clears throat> and everlasting fellowship, the fullest realization of all the promises of, of the gospel. <clears throat> he goes on here. I suppose I should read this part too. Even during this present era, the interval of separation, the betrothal period that we're in right now, those who are effectually called to the marriage supper of the Lamb are blessed. Now, he makes a little note here. Those who are effectually called, that is, they hear the gospel, they're given ears to hear God by his spirit, regenerates their hearts, grants them faith, they're, they're born again, <clears throat> and, and they are blessed. They are in the marriage supper of the Lamb. But remember, you have phrases like this, uh, Jesus saying things in the Gospels like, many are called, few are chosen. And you have that parable where <clears throat> the king is giving this feast for his son, who's going to be married, and he's imploring people to come, and yet there's many who, oh, I'm too busy, I can't come, you know. Many are called. Fewer, fewer chosen, but then um, he compels people then to come, and and they come, and then while they're there at the marriage feast, um, the king comes and he comes in and he spots this one guy who's not dressed in wedding garments, and he asks him, "What do you what are you doing here?" How come you're not dressed in wedding garments? And he, and he tells his servants, 
take this guy and throw him out into hell, basically, is, is, is what it is, you see? Because it's only those who are effectually called, those who are actually regenerated, born again by the power of, of, of the Lord, who will be at the marriage supper of, uh, of the Lamb. And uh, let's see here now. <clears throat> Before the supper itself even begins, the called ones are blessed. These are the true words of God. They're genuine and real. Filled with ecstasy, the apostle John falls down now before the feet of the angel in order to worship him. And uh, maybe he mistook him for the Lord Jesus Christ. But at any rate, the speaker, the angel who was the intended worship, John's going to fall down, worship him and so on. He says, no, 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 to God render worship. Uh, and he says, the, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, everything then here is true. Okay, so that's what this marriage supper of the Lamb then is, uh, is, is all about. Then the, the vision changes, it flashes again here now, from the marriage supper to the, the rider on the white. Then I saw heaven opened. Okay, here's something else coming at, coming at John. And behold, a white horse. And as we've said, um, you see here <clears throat> that obviously this is Christ. There's no doubt about it. The white horse is, a, is something that a conquering king would ride. Um, and, the, and the question comes up then, right, uh, as it always does as we study Revelation. Um, well, is this, how much of this is literal? We know this much. Christ is going to literally and visibly return. Every eye will see him, right? Um, the wicked, we had that image in Revelation earlier, the wicked, it's like, oh, his wrath has come, rocks and hills, force. Or is that, is this vision telling us that he comes as the conquering king? And we'll, we'll talk about that then <clears throat> some more, to some degree, you know. And, well, for instance here, um, <clears throat> You see here in verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Well, so now we begin to see, uh, well, a lot of this then is symbols that tell us something. His eyes as a flame of fire represent his wrath. He's coming in, in judgment. His, his clothing is, is dipped in blood. It's the, it's the blood of, of his enemies. <clears throat> but uh, the point here is that that I wanted to make here, is that obviously this is Christ. He's called faithful and true. Um, <clears throat> his eyes like a flame of fire, that harkens us right back to the image of Christ, the risen Christ that John saw in chapter 1. Um, his, he, here, and he really nails it here in verse 13. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. The Logos, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among. Obviously, He is, <clears throat> this is the Lord Jesus 
Christ. And then we have all of these uh, armies of heaven. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Here again, that's obviously imagery. What does it represent? The sword represents the, the word of God. All he do, has to do, all he has to do to destroy his enemies is speak. <laughs> his authority. I mean, <clears throat> it's by his word alone that the universe was created out of nothing. He spoke, you know, let there be, let there be, and there was. And so he spoke. Well, here, that same mighty word uh, announces the destruction of his enemies. So here is this, uh, the, you know, the supposed big battle of Armageddon <clears throat> turns out not really a battle at all. All the armies of the Antichrist are here. We're going to war against the Lamb. And the Lamb simply speaks. And they're cast into the, into the lake of fire then forever and ever. Well, we better stop <clears throat> right there. And we will plan next time then to return to uh, <clears throat> Herman Hoxima's commentary <clears throat> and get him his help as we look further and in more detail into this uh, description of the return of Christ as the rider on the white horse. And we'll pick up there next time. Father, thank you for these great truths that you've blessed us with to that you, you've loved us enough to, to show us your plan and to encourage us by, by this, that we know that Christ is victorious, that he is most certainly going to return for his bride, his church, and when he does, we will be, we will be with him forever. All enemies, all of the wicked will be gone forever the entire the, the curse will be completely <clears throat> removed and we will experience life as it was meant to be and we pray father that christ would return soon for his bride and we pray this in christ's name amen